Hello, it is Friday, November 8th, 2019. This is The Cash Flush, a programmer's audio scrapbook by me, Avdi Grimm, and some of my friends. And here is what is in the cash this week. Book notes for today's reading of domain-driven design. We're getting into the area talking about aggregates, and the example is a purchase order. Purchase order has purchase order line items, and every line item also refers to a part, and a part has a price. Line items combine a price with an amount um, and a or account under a particular purchase order. The purchase orders also have limits to them, limits to how much a purchase order is allowed to cost in, in total. And the example goes over some various non-obvious ways that this can, um, this can lead to problems when multiple people are working on multiple purchase orders at a time. And there are some obvious, fairly, fairly clear problems when multiple people are working on the same purchase order, but what is particularly interesting are the problems that can occur when each person is working on a different purchase order, but, they're but in the process, they're modifying the prices of parts um, and either you know, messing each other up directly by modifying the prices on each other or being blocked by each other because of a locking system that, that prevents more than one person from editing a parts price at a time. The conclusion um, is in two parts. It's, or the, the, the alteration that's made later is first to create a greater separation between part prices and, and the parts in the system in the form of copying the price into the purchase order or into the line item rather than making it a link to the part and this is also helpful for archival purposes because one thing you don't want is you don't want archived purchases that have already happened to have their, their amounts uh, mysteriously change as the parts that they refer to are updated in the database. Um, and this is one of those examples of um, why a total focus on don't repeat yourself uh, can lead to a lot of problems because it's one of those cases of, well, these happen to be, the, 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 num the amount, the current price of a part and the price that part was sold for happen to be the same today. Ah, duplication, let's not repeat ourselves and make sure that those are actually represented by the same number in memory or this, this the same number in the database. It's actually coincidental duplication. Those are not the same piece of information. The, part, the price that a part was sold for and the price that it is currently valued at, those are not the same piece of information. And you begin, and you see that once you introduce the axis of time. And this is the other thing that this example makes really clear is uh, the, um, the example comes to the 
to the point of drawing an aggregate boundary around the purchase order and the purchase order line items, and the parts are outside of that aggregate boundary. Their information is copied in, it is not linked in. And what Eric Evans says there is these, the distinction is partly made because of difference in lifetime. I don't think he uses the term lifetime, but the purchase order and the line items have similar lifetimes. The parts have a very different lifetime. And again, this is one of those things that becomes very obvious once, once you bring in the axis of time. If you could draw them out as lines on a timeline, you would see, ah, these are very different objects. Because one has a line that stretches from, for many, um, for many lifetimes. You know, parts have, have, would have a line that stretches for many lifetimes of purchase orders. Here's a question. It always feels like the software that I'm working on has all of these flaws and things that should be better and errors that aren't handled well enough and, and um, architecture that is hopefully evolving but is never what I want it to be. Is that just me or is that how everybody sees the software they work on? Oh man, do we all feel as if the software that we work on is, is low quality and full of bugs? Well, speaking for myself, any piece of code that I've worked on for a um, sufficient amount of time to be familiar with it has mostly felt like it was held together with duct tape and bailing wire. I think that's just the nature of the beast. We're so intimately familiar with all of the compromises and the things that we sort of rushed through and the, the little workarounds that we do as a part of our development workflow. I'll bet most developers out there have a nagging sense that the code that they are put that, you know, the, the app that they work on is held together with duct tape and bailing wire. Duct tape and bailing wire. Right. And there's obvious parallels here to our personal lives in the sense of people say don't compare yourself to people on Twitter to people on YouTube because you're seeing their best bits and you're comparing them to all your everyday bits and that's a very different comparison so it probably works the same with software imposter syndrome if you don't feel qualified to be in the room None of us are qualified. We're all held together with duct tape and bailing wire. And we still get stuff done. And we get stuff done better together because we all have different duct tape and bailing wire. Some more DDD book notes here. So now I'm reading about factories, and Eric Evans makes um, the very good point that 
The places where we usually assemble complex objects are not necessarily the best places to do it. For a long time, object-oriented or so-called object-oriented programming languages have conflated the responsibilities of an object with the responsibility for building that object, which are two very different things and require different quantities of context. A lot of times, a class itself doesn't have all the context that it needs in order to, to do assembly. Um, but he points out that there are even worse problems when you shift that responsibility over to clients. Um, he says, if the client is expected to assemble the domain object it needs, it must know something about the internal structure of the object. In order to enforce all the invariants that apply to the relationship of parts in the domain object, the client must know some of the object's rules. Even calling constructors couples the client to the concrete classes of the objects it is building. No change to the implementation of the domain objects can be made without changing the client, making refactoring harder. Um, a concrete example I think of is I like to encapsulate external APIs in gateway objects. And I like a, a gateway object to be a fairly slim um, shim over the actual API uh, without, a lot, without a lot of added machinery which makes it really easy to test and play around with. But at the same time, sometimes I want to also add stuff to that, like caching layers. And so the, one of the ways that I like to do that is to have a wrapper, have a, a decorator that can wrap around a gateway object and add caching uh, fairly transparently to its protocol, to its API. And where do you add, the question becomes, where do you add the wrapper? I certainly don't want the class itself, the gateway class, that's supposed to be a very thin layer over an API. I don't want it to be responsible for also arranging caching internally. I don't want it to have that responsibility. I don't want to have to, it to, to be cluttering up my, um, my thinking about how to interact with that API. But it's also, it also doesn't make sense for clients of that code to do the wrapping in a, in a caching layer because those are domain objects. They don't care about caching. They care about, you know, getting the data that they need from some external service through a, through an abstraction layer. It's not, that's not the right place in the code to be making the decision about caching. Caching is a performance, um, consideration. It's a cross-cutting concern. It's kind of an ops consideration. So where do you make that decision? And, you know, I think where Evans is going with this is encapsulate your complex object creation in factories. Um, and um, I've seen a few strategies for doing that. I'm curious where he will go with that. I read a definition of silver bullet the other day in something that was not about code. And I like its definition better than the one we usually use. Uh, we usually use silver bullet as mentioned by Fred Brooks, I think in the mythical man month as something that offers a 10 X improvement in work. And he says, there are no silver bullets, but the other definition was a 
A silver bullet is something that advances one leg of a trade-off without harming the others. So I think it was from healthcare, and you have like patient care to consider, you have cost, you have doctor's time, you have facilities and uh, quality measures. And if you can improve patient care with no more cost or to, to outcomes or quality or anything else, that's a silver bullet and you should definitely do it. Book notes for domain-driven design. I've reached the end of the factory section. There wasn't much more to go through. Uh, just some discussions of the difference, differences in factories that create value objects versus the ones that create entities, and also the difference between factories that only create new objects versus the ones that reconstitute objects, like, say, from a serialization format over the wire or from a database. Of course, some of these things are typically taken care of by, um, by say, object relational mapping layers in typical applications. The interesting reflection for me is just thinking about how factories have acquired such a, um, a bad reputation uh, particularly from, I think, Java APIs. But Evans makes a really solid case for factories um, being a, a very valid design decision, uh, particularly at the domain layer, where it doesn't make sense to, um, to keep encoding the details of how a complex aggregate object are put together um, at the point of assembly. Um, but it also often doesn't make sense for the for the classes to be responsible, solely responsible for that within their own constructors. Um, and particularly, he makes the point that there are some object invariants that you want to maintain certain rules about, well, you know, if it has this, then it also needs to have this. But they don't make sense to maintain within the object itself because they have to do with its relationship to other objects. And one of the ways of observing those invariants is making sure that instantiation is, uh, is handled by a higher level factory that is aware of all of the objects, all of the entities that are involved in this relationship. I feel like a lot of the bad reputation for factories that I've observed comes from lower level frameworks that require the use of factories and factory factories, things that were not at the domain layer. Um, I recall seeing some things like this in, in Java uh, libraries and even standard libraries to some degree. And I wonder if some of that could have been ameliorated by just using more special purpose factory methods and fewer factory classes. And that's it for the cash flush this week. Thanks for listening. 
If you like the show, please subscribe, maybe leave a review. If you love the show, uh, you can support it by supporting me, Avdi Grimm, on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash A-V-D-I-G-R-I-M-M. You can also leave me a message or ask a question for me to address on the show. Just go to anchor.fm or grab the Anchor app for your phone and look up the cash flush. Once again, thanks for listening, and don't forget the flush. <laughs>